Section 8 of The Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Natural History, Volume 4, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 8. Chapter 70. Rushes. Candle rushes. Rushes for thatching. The rush, so frail in form and growing in marshy spots, cannot be reckoned as belonging to the shrubs, nor yet to the brambles or the stock plants, nor indeed in strict justice to any of the classes of plants except one that is peculiarly its own. It is extensively used for making thatch and matting, and with the outer coat taken off, for making candles and funeral torches. In some places, however, the rush is more hard and firm. Thus, for instance, it is employed not only by the sailors on the padus for making the sails of boats, but for the purposes of sea-fishing as well, by the fishermen of Africa, who, in a most preposterous manner, hang the sails made of it behind the masts. The people, too, of Mauritania thatch their cottages with rushes, Indeed, if we look somewhat closely into the matter, it will appear that the rush is held in pretty nearly the same degree of estimation there as the papyrus in the inner regions of the world. Chapter 71. The Elder, the Bramble. Of a peculiar nature, too, though to be reckoned among the water plants, is the bramble. A shrub-like plant, and the elder, which is of a spongy nature, though not resembling giant fennel, for having upon it a greater quantity of wood. It is a belief among the shepherds that if they cut a horn or trumpet from the wood of this tree, it will give all the louder sound if cut in a spot where the shrub has been out of hearing of the crowing of the cock. The bramble bears mulberries, and one variety of it known as sinosbetos, bear a flower similar to the rose. There is a third variety known to the Greeks as the Idaean bramble, from the place where it grows. It is slighter than the others, with smaller thorns, and not so hooked. Its flower, mixed with honey, is employed as an ointment for sore eyes and chrysipelas, and an infusion of it in water is used for disease of the stomach. The elder bears a small black berry, which contains a viscous juice employed more particularly for staining the hair. The berries, too, are boiled in water and eaten. Chapter 72. The Juices of Trees There is a juice in the bark of trees which must be looked upon as their blood, though it is not of a similar nature in all. In the fig it is of a milky consistency, and has the peculiar property of curdling milk and so forming cheese. In the cherry tree this juice is gummy, in the elm clammy, in the apple viscous and fatty while in the vine and the pear it is watery. The more viscous this humour is, the more long-lived the tree. In a word, we find in the bodies of trees, as with all other beings that are animated, skin, blood, flesh, sinews, veins, bones, and marrow, the bark serving them in the place of skin. It is a singular fact connected with the mulberry tree, that when the medical men wish to extract its juice, if the incision is lightly made by a blow with a stone, and at the second hour of the day in spring, the juice will flow. 
but if on the other hand a wound is inflicted to any depth, it has all the appearance of being dried up. Immediately beneath the bark in most trees there is a fatty substance which from its colour has obtained the name of alburnum. It is soft and is the very worst part of the wood, and in the robur even will very easily rot, being particularly liable to woodworm, for which reason it is invariably removed. Beneath this fat lies the flesh of the tree, and under that its bones, or in other words the choicest part of the wood. Those trees which have a dry wood, the olive, for instance, bear fruit every other year only. This is more the case with them than with the wood of which is of a fleshy nature, such as the cherry, for instance. It is not all trees, too, that have their fat and flesh in any abundance. The same as we find to be the case among the more active animals. The box, the cornel, and the olive have none at all, nor yet any marrow, and a very small proportion, too, of blood. In the same way, too, the service tree has no bones, and the elder no flesh, while both of them have marrow in the greatest abundance. Reeds, too, have hardly any flesh. Chapter 73. The Veins and Fibres of Trees In the flesh of some trees we find both fibres and veins. They are easily distinguished. The veins are larger, while the fibres are of a whiter material, and are to be found in those woods more particularly which are easily split. Hence it is that if the ear is applied to the extremity of a beam of wood, however long, a tap with a graver, even upon the other end, may be distinctly heard, the sound penetrating by the passages which run straight through it. By these means it is that we ascertain whether timber runs awry, or is interrupted by knots. The tuberosities which we find on trees resemble the kernels that are formed in flesh. They contain neither veins nor fibres but only a kind of tough, solid flesh, rolled up in a sort of ball. It is these tuberosities that are the most esteemed parts in the citrus and the maple. As to the other kinds of wood which are employed for making tables, the trees are split into planks lengthwise, and the parts are then selected along which the fibre runs, and properly rounded, for the wood would be too brittle to use if it were cut in segments crosswise. In the beech, the grain of the fibrous part runs crosswise. Hence it is that the ancients held in such high esteem all vessels made with the wood of it. Manius Curius made oath on one occasion that he had not touched an article of all the spoil except a single oil cruet of beech to use for sacrificing. Wood is always put lengthwise into the water to season, as that part which was nearest the root will sink to a greater depth than the other. In some wood there is fibre without veins, and merely consisting of filaments slightly knit together. Wood of this nature is remarkably fissile. Other wood, again, is more broken across than split, such as the wood of those trees that have no fibre, the olive and the vine, for instance. On the other hand, in the fig tree, the whole of the body consists of flesh. The holm oak, the cornel, the robur, the cystesis, the mulberry, the ebony, the lotus, and the other trees which we have mentioned as being destitute of marrow consist entirely of bone. All these woods are of a blackish colour, with the exception of the cornel, of which glossy yellow hunting spears are made, marked with incisions for their further embellishment. In the cedar, the juniper, and the larch, the wood is red. In Greece, the female larch furnishes a wood, which is known as aegis, and is just the colour of honey. 
this wood has been found to be proof against decay and forms the panels used by painters being never known to gape or split the portion thus employed is that which lies nearest to the pith in the fir tree this part is called loison by the greeks in the cedar too the hardest part in the wood that lies nearest to the sap after the slimy pith has been carefully removed it has a similar degree of hardness to the bones in the bodies of animals it is said too that in greece the inner part of the elder is remarkably firm indeed those whose business it is to make hunting spears prefer this material to all others it being a wood composed wholly of skin and bone chapter seventy four the felling of trees the proper time for felling trees that are wanted for barking the round tapering trees for instance that are employed in temples and for other purposes is at the period of germination for at other times it is quite impossible to detach the bark from the rotten wood that adheres to it while the wood itself assumes a blackish hue squared logs and wood from which the bark has been lopped are generally cut in the period that intervenes between the winter solstice and the prevalence of the west winds or else if it is necessary to anticipate that period at the setting of arterius and before that of lyre the very earliest period being the summer solstice the days of these respective constellations will be mentioned in the appropriate place in general it is looked upon as quite sufficient to use all due precaution that a tree is not a rough hewn before it has borne its yearly crop the robur if cut in spring is subject to the attacks of woodworm but if cut in winter will neither rot nor warp otherwise it is very liable to bend and become awry as well as to crack the same is the case too with a cork tree even if cut down at the proper time the state of the moon too is of infinite importance and it is generally recommended that trees should be cut only between the twentieth and the thirtieth days of the month it is generally agreed however by all that it is the very best time for felling timber when the moon is in conjunction with the sun a day which is called by some persons the interludium and by others the moon's silence at all events it was under these circumstances that tiberius caesar gave orders for the larches to be cut in raetia that were required for the purpose of rebuilding the bridge of the naumachia after it had been destroyed by fire some persons say that the moon ought not only to be in conjunction but below the horizon as well a thing that can only happen in the night if the conjunction should chance to fall on the very day of the winter solstice the timber they say that is then felled will be of everlasting duration the next best being the timber that is cut when the conjunction coincides with the constellations previously mentioned there are some too who add the rising of the dog star as a favourable time and say that it was at this period that the timber was cut which was employed in building the forum of augustus wood which is intended for timber ought to be cut neither when too young nor too old some persons too and the practice is by no means without its utility cut round the tree as far as the pith and then leave the timber standing so that all the juices may be enabled to escape going back to ancient times it is a remarkable fact that in the first punic war the fleet commanded by dulius was on the water within sixty days from the time the timber was cut and what is still more so piso relates that king hiero had two hundred and twenty ships wholly constructed in forty-five days in the second punic war 
the fleet of Scipio was at sea the fortieth day after the axe had been put to the tree. Such is the energy and dispatch that can be displayed on occasions of emergency. Chapter 75 The Opinion of Cato on the Felling of Timber Cato, a man of consummate authority in all practical matters, expresses himself in relation to timber to the following effect. For making presses, employ the wood of the sapinus in preference. When you root up the elm, the pine, the nut tree, or indeed any other kind of tree, mine and do so when the moon is on the wane, after midday, and when there is no south wind blowing. The proper time for cutting a tree is when the seed is ripe. But be careful not to draw it away or plane it while the dew is falling. He then proceeds to say, Never touch the timber except when the moon is on the change, or else at the end of the second quarter. At those periods you may either root up the tree or fell it as it stands. The next seven days after the full moon are the best of all for grubbing a tree. Be particularly careful, too, not to rough-hew timber or indeed to cut or touch it unless it is perfectly dry and by no means while it is covered with frost or dew. The emperor Tiberius used only to observe the changes of the moon for cutting his hair. M. Waro has recommended that the hair should be cut at full moon only, if we would avoid baldness. Chapter 76 The Size of Trees, the Nature of Wood, the Sapinus From the large and still more the fir, after it has been cut, a liquid flows for a considerable period. These are the loftiest and straightest of all the trees. The fir is preferred for making the masts and sail-yards of ships on account of its comparative lightness. It is a common feature with these trees, in common with the pine, to have four rows of veins running along the wood, or else two, or sometimes only one. The heart of these trees is peculiarly well adapted for joiner's work, and the best wood of all is that which has four layers of veins, it being softer than the rest. Men of experience in these matters can instantly form a judgment of the quality of the bark. That part in which the fir, which is nearest to the ground, is free from knots, when soaked in river water in the way we have already mentioned, and then barked, the wood of this part is known as sapinus, while that of the upper part, which is harder and knotty, goes by the name of fusterna. In trees, the side which looks towards the northeast is the most robust, and it is universally the case that those which grow in moist and damp localities are of inferior quality, while in those which grow in warm and sunny spots the wood is more compact and durable. Hence it is that at Rome the fir is preferred that grows on the shores of the Tyrrhenian Sea to that of the shores of the Adriatic. There are also considerable differences in the qualities of these trees according to the country of their growth. The most esteemed are those of the Alps and the Apennines, in Gaul those of Jura and Mount Vogesus, those also of Corsica, Bithynia, Pontus and Macedonia, while the firs of Aenea and Arcadia are of inferior quality. Those, however, of Parnassus and Eubea are the worst of all, the trees being branchy and knotted, and the wood very apt to rot. As for the cedar, those of Crete, Africa, and Syria are the most esteemed. Wood, if well rubbed with oil of cedar, is proof against woodworm and decay. The juniper, too, has the same virtues as the cedar. In Spain, it grows to a very considerable size, in the territory of the Vacciae, more particularly. The heart of this tree, too, is universally more firm and solid than cedar even. A general fault in all wood is that known as cross-grain, 
which is formed by contortions of the knots and veins. In the wood of some trees there are to be found nerves, like those in marble. These nerves are remarkably hard, and offer a resistance like that of a nail to the greatest injury of the saw. In some cases also they are formed accidentally from either a stone or the branch of another tree lodging there and being absorbed in the body of the tree. In the forum at Megara there long stood a wild olive upon which warriors who had distinguished themselves by their martial powers had been in the habit of suspending their arms. In the lapse of time the bark of this tree had closed and quite concealed these arms from view. Upon it, however, depended the fate of the city for it had been announced by an oracle that when a tree there should bring forth arms the fall of the city would be close at hand and such in fact was the result when the tree was cut down and greaves and helmets were found within the wood it is said that stones found under these circumstances have the property of preventing abortion it is generally thought that the largest tree that has ever been seen was the one that was exhibited at rome by tiberius caesar as an object of curiosity, upon the bridge of the Naumachia previously mentioned. It had been brought thither along with other timber, and was preserved till the construction of the amphitheatre of the Emperor Nero. It was a log of larch, one hundred and twenty feet long, and of an uniform thickness of a couple of feet. From this fact we can form an estimate of the original height of the tree. Indeed, measured from top to bottom, it must have been originally of the length that is almost incredible. In our own time, too, in the porticos of the Septa, there was a log which has been left there by M. Agrippa as being equally an object of curiosity, having been found too large to be used in the building of the vote office there. It was twenty feet shorter than the one previously mentioned, and a foot and a half in thickness. There was a fir, too, that was particularly admired, when it formed the mast of the ship which brought from Egypt by order of the Emperor Caius, the obelisk that was erected in the Vaticanian Circus, with the four blocks of stone intended for its base. It is beyond all doubt that there has been seen nothing on the sea more wonderful than this ship. One hundred and twenty thousand modii of lentils formed its ballast, and the length of it took the greater part of the left side of the harbour of Ostia. It was sunk at that spot by order of the Emperor Claudius, three moles, each as high as a tower being built upon it. They were constructed with cement, which the same vessel had conveyed from Putioli. It took the arms of four men to span the girth of this tree, and we not unfrequently hear of the price of masts for such purposes, as being eighty thousand seterces or more. Rafts, too, of this wood are sometimes put together, with the value of which is forty thousand. In Egypt and Syria it is said, the kings, for want of fur, used to employ cedar for building their ships. The largest cedar that we find mentioned is said to have come from Cyprus, where it was cut to form the mast of a galley of eleven tiers of oars that belonged to Demetrius. It was one hundred and thirty feet in length, and took three men to span its girth. The pirates of Germany navigate their seas in vessels formed of a single tree hollowed out. Some of these will hold as many as thirty men. Of all woods, the most compact and consequently the heaviest are the ebony and the box, both of them of a slender make. Neither of these woods will float in water, nor indeed will that of the cork tree if the bark is removed. The same is the case too with the wood of the larch. Of the other woods, the driest is that of the tree known at Rome as the lotus, and next 
that of the rover when the white sap has been removed the wood of the rover is dark and that of the cystesis still more so approaching in fact the nearest of all to the colour of ebony though there are not wanting writers who assert that the wood of the syrian terebinth is darker an artist of the name of Thericles is highly spoken of for his skill in turning goblets from the wood of the terebinth and indeed that fact is a proof of the goodness of the wood terebinth is the only wood that requires to be rubbed with oil and is improved thereby its colour is imitated remarkably well with the walnut and the wild pear which have its peculiar tint imparted to them by being boiled in colouring liquid the wood of all the trees of which we have here made mention is firm and compact next after them come the cornel although it can hardly be looked upon as timber in consequence of its remarkable slimness the wood of it in fact is used for hardly any other purpose than the spokes of wheels or else for making wedges for splitting wood and pins or bolts which have all the hardness of those of iron besides these there are the holm oak the wild and cultivated olive the chestnut the yoke elm and the poplar this last is mottled similarly to the maple and would be used for joiner's work if wood could be good for anything when the branches are so often lopped that acting upon the tree as a sort of castration and depriving it of its strength in addition to these facts most of these trees but the robur more particularly are so extremely hard that it is quite impossible to bore the wood till it has been soaked in water and even then a nail once driven home cannot be drawn out again on the other hand a nail has no hold in cedar the wood of the lime is the softest of all and as it would appear the hottest by nature a proof of this they say is the fact that it will turn the edge of the adze sooner than any other wood in the number also of the trees that are hot by nature are the mulberry the laurel the ivy and all those woods from which fire is kindled by attrition chapter seventy seven methods of obtaining fire from wood this is a method which has been employed by the outposts of armies and by shepherds on occasions when there has not been a stone at hand to strike fire with two pieces of wood are rubbed briskly together and the friction soon sets them on fire which is caught on dry and inflammable substances funguses and leaves being found to ignite the most readily there is nothing superior to the wood of the ivy for rubbing against or to that of the laurel for rubbing with a species of wild vine too not the same as the labrusia which climbs up other trees like the ivy is highly approved of the coldest wood of all are those of the aquatic trees but there are the most flexible also and for that reason the best adapted for the construction of bucklers on an incision being made in them they will contract immediately and so close up their wounds at the same time rendering it more difficult for the iron to penetrate in the number of these woods are the fig the willow the lime the birch the elder and both varieties of the poplar the lightest of all these woods and consequently the most useful are the fig and the willow they are all of them employed however in the manufacture of baskets and other utensils of wickerwork while at the same time they possess a degree of whiteness and hardness which render them very well adapted for carving the plane has considerable flexibility but it is moist and slimy like the alder the elm too the ash the mulberry and the cherry are flexible but of a drier nature the wood however is more weighty 
The elm is the best of all for retaining its natural toughness, and hence it is more particularly employed for socket beams for hinges, and cases for the panelling of doors being proof against warping. It is requisite, however, that the beam to receive the hinge should be inverted when set up, the top of the tree answering to the lower hinge, the roof to the upper, the wood of the palm and the cork tree is soft, while that of the apple and the pear is compact. Such, however, is not the case with the maple, its wood being brittle, as in fact all veined woods are. In every kind of tree, the varieties in the wood are still more augmented by the wild trees and the males. The wood, too, of the barren tree is more solid than that of the fruit-bearing ones, except in those species in which the male trees bear fruit, the cypress and the cornel, for instance. Chapter 78. Trees which are proof against decay, trees which never split. The following trees are proof against decay and the otherwise injurious effects of age. The cypress, the cedar, the ebony, the lotus, the box, the yew, the juniper, and both the wild and cultivated olive. Among the others, the larch and the robur, the cork tree, the chestnut, and the walnut are also remarkably durable. The cedar, cypress, olive, and box are never known to split or crack spontaneously. Chapter 79. Historical Facts Connected with the Durability of Wood Of all the woods, the ebony, the cypress, and the cedar are considered to be the most durable, a good proof of which is to be seen in the timber of which the temple of Diana at Ephesus is built. It being now four hundred years since it was erected, at the joint expense of the whole of Asia, and, what is a well-known fact, the roof is wholly constructed of planks of cedar. As to the statue of the goddess, there is some doubt of what wood it is made. All writers say that it is ebony, with the exception of Mucianus, who was three times consul, one of the very latest among the writers that have seen it. He declares that it is made of the wood of the vine, and that it has never been changed all the seven times that the temple has been rebuilt. He says, too, that it was Endeus who made choice of this wood, and even goes so far as to mention the artist's name, a thing that really surprises me very much, seeing that he attributes to it an antiquity that dates before the time of Father Lieber, and of Minerva even. He states also that, by the aid of numerous apertures, it is soaked with nard, in order that the moist nature of that drug may preserve the wood and keep the seams close together. I am rather surprised, however, that there should be any seams in the statue, considering the very moderate size it is. He informs us also that the doors are made of cypress, and that the wood, which has now lasted very nearly four hundred years, has all the appearance of new. It is worthy of remark, too, that the wood of these doors, after the pieces had been glued together, was left to season four years before they were put up. Cypress was made choice of from the circumstance that it is the only kind of wood that maintains its polish to all future time. And have we not the statue of Vesuvius, also made of cypress, still preserved in the capital, where it was consecrated in the year of the city 661? The temple of Apollo too at Utica is equally celebrated. There we may see beams of cedar still in existence, and in just the same condition in which they were when erected at the first building of that city, 1178 years ago. At Saguntum, too, in Spain, there is a temple of Diana, which was brought thither by the original founders of the place from the island of Zacynthus in the year 200, before the taking of Troy, Bocus says. 
It is preserved beneath the town, they say. Hannibal, being induced thereto by feelings of religious veneration, spared this temple, and its beams made of juniper are still in existence at this very day. But the most memorable instance of all is that of the temple which was dedicated to some goddess at Aulis several ages before the Trojan War. Of what wood, however, it was originally built is a fact that has been long lost in oblivion. Speaking in general terms, we may say that those woods are of the greatest durability, which are the most odoriferous. Next to the woods of which we have just spoken, that of the mulberry is held in the highest degree of esteem, and it will even turn black when old. There are some trees again that are more durable than others when employed for certain purposes. The wood of the elm lasts the best in the open air, that of the robber when buried in the ground, and that of the quercus when exposed to the action of water. Indeed, the wood of this last, if employed in works above ground, is apt to split and warp. The wood of the large thrives best in the midst of moisture. The same is the case, too, with that of the black alder. The wood of the robur spoils by exposure to the action of seawater. The beech and the walnut are far from disapproved for the construction under water, and in fact these are the principal woods, too, that are used for works underground. The same is the case also with the juniper, which is equally serviceable when exposed to the atmosphere. The woods of the beech and the cedrus very quickly deteriorate, and that of the Aeschylus will not withstand the action of water. On the other hand, the alder, when driven into the ground in marshy localities, is of everlasting duration, and able to support the very heaviest weights. The wood of the cherry is strong, while those of the elm and the ash are pliable, though apt to warp. These last will still retain their flexibility, and be less liable to warp, if the wood is left to stand and dry upon the trunk, after the pith has been cut around. It is said that the larch, when used for sea-going ships, is liable to the attacks of the teredo, as in fact all the woods are, with the exception of the wild and cultivated olive. It is a fact, too, that there are some woods that are more liable to spoil in the sea, and others in the ground. End of Section 8 Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama.